We are continuing our study in the book of Exodus. And so if you have your Bible, why don't you turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. That's page 95, or 59, rather, if you're using the Bible in the, in the seat back in front of you. And as you turn there, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this time together now to study your word. Father, we thank you for the time we just spent in worship. And I pray that now as we listen to your word read and, and preach, Father, that that also would be a moment of worship, a moment where we recognize how great you are and how to live our lives in response to that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 17, we're going to start reading in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And we're just going to read that verse for right now because I want to acknowledge right off the bat that that's kind of an abrupt way to begin a story, wouldn't you say? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. It kind of just comes out of nowhere. As a preaching team, we've been reading a book together called The Art of Preaching Old Testament Narratives, and it's all about the Old Testament and and the stories in the Old Testament. And one of the things that the book talks about is how almost every single story in the Old Testament has a certain structure to it that, that applies to almost every story. And they say in the book that every story in the Old Testament, for the most part, starts with something called exposition. And what, what they mean by that is the author basically sets the stage for the story he's about to tell. So he introduces the characters, he kind of talks about the, the geography, or just kind of gives the situation that's happening. And then after doing that, he tell, tells about a crisis, or some kind of problem that needs to be solved in the narrative. And so I find it interesting that here, as we start reading this story, there's not really any exposition. We go straight into the crisis, straight into the problem. And so what I want to do is just kind of set the stage a little bit for us to understand what's happening here. Growing up, my mom used to have an expression. She used to say that bad things happen in threes. And I'm not really sure where she got that expression from or how true it is, uh, but it's an accurate description of Israel's experience after they make their journey out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They've had this incredible experience of being slaves in in Egypt and being rescued by God and and escaping from Egypt through the Red Sea. But then after they make it out of the Red Sea, it seems like it's just one bad thing after another for God's people. Uh, You can imagine being part of this massive group of people walking through the desert, walking through the wilderness. I imagine there'd be three worst case scenarios that would be running through your mind if if you're in this group. The first thing you'd think is, what if we run out of water? The second thing is, what if we run out of food? And the third thing you'd think is, what if we get attacked by an enemy, uh, another nation? And it turns out that these are the exact three things that happen to God's people right after they make it out of the Red Sea. It's three days into their journey. The people look around and they realize that they don't have any water. And if they don't get water soon, they're all going to die of thirst in the desert. Shortly after that problem solved, the people look around and they realize that they don't have any food. And they don't get food soon, they're going to all die of starvation in the desert. And then after the food problem solved, they look around again, they realize that they've moved on since the last time they have water and they don't have any more. And they don't get water soon, they're going to die. Now, in each of these situations, God's provided for his people in miraculous ways. But God's people aren't really focused on his provision, they're more looking at the problems. And so you can just imagine somebody saying, okay, great, no food, no water. 
at least nothing worse can happen to us. And then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And so if it sounds like an abrupt way to start the story, I think that's actually intentional because the author wants us to realize here's another bad thing right after all the other things that Israel's gone through. It seems like things are just piling up for them and what are they going to do about it? This time it's, it's not water or food that they're looking for. Uh, this time they're under attack by a person named Amalek. And we don't know too much about Amalek or the Amalekites, the nation that, that attacks Israel here, but we know a few things from the rest of Scripture. Uh, we know that they were most likely a nomadic group. And what that means is that uh, they didn't have a fixed city or settlement, but they kind of wandered through the land with their, with their herds, with their cattle, and they looked for grazing areas, they looked for water, and they kind of wandered through the land like that. Uh, that kind of explains why they run into the Israelites when they do, probably wandering through the land. We don't know how large a group they were or what their population was, but obviously large enough that they felt confident attacking God's people. And so that's what they do. And I don't know what you picture in your head when I read the lines that Amalek came and fought with Israel. Uh, but for me, the first time I pictured this, I pictured your typical Hollywood battle scene, right? You, you guys all know the, the scene, right? There's, you know, a camp on this side and a camp on this side. Uh, there's a two lines of soldiers that are kind of lined up, ready to go. Uh, you know, at this time, they'd have pretty primitive weapons. So you'd have swords, you'd have maybe some spears, some clubs, things like that. And if you, if you looked across the faces of the soldier, you'd see just a bunch of angry, intense faces. Uh, maybe there'd be a commander of the army kind of walking up and down the line, getting his soldiers riled up for the fight. And then at the, at the moment when everything's kind of getting whipped up into a frenzy, the soldiers would run at each other in this epic battle, and there'd be kind of this confrontation in the middle of, of the two lines of soldiers. Now, if this was the only text that talked about this battle, we might be right to picture it that way. But there's actually some indications later in Scripture that the battle didn't happen like that at all. You see, this event became such a pivotal moment in Israel's history that it got referred back to time and time again. One of these times comes in the book of Deuteronomy when Moses is recounting what happened on that day. Listen to the words that he says in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17 to 18. He says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. In other words, this was not two groups of soldiers ready to go meeting in battle. This was a completely different kind of attack. If you imagine God's people stretched out for kilometers through the desert, through the wilderness, you'd have at the front the leaders of the group, those who are setting the pace, those who are strong and healthy. And then keep going through the whole line until you get to the end of the line where you have those who are struggling to keep up, those who are sick, those who are unable to walk on their own, those who are elderly. And what Moses says in that text is that that's where Amalek struck. Uh, he didn't wait till they were ready. He didn't engage them in, in a fair battle he saw a group coming out of, walking through the wilderness, tired, hungry, thirsty, and he decided to attack them at their weakest point. And so you can imagine the panic and the, and the fear that runs through the camp as they start to realize what's happening. I imagine some people running away from the battle, others rushing towards it. Uh, people screaming, people yelling, people wondering, where's Moses? What, what is Moses going to do about this? What, what are we going to do? And, and we don't get a lot of the details. What we do get, though, 
is a meeting that takes place between Moses, who is the leader of God's people, and a young man named Joshua. We read this in verse 9. It says, So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Moses mentions tomorrow he's going to do this. So I picture this meeting probably happening in the evening or maybe even at night. Uh, the battle's done for the day, but tomorrow's coming. And so they need a plan as to how they're going to actually face this enemy tomorrow. What's, what are we going to do? Now, it's interesting that every other time God's people face a crisis in the book, we see two things. We see, first of all, the people complaining to Moses. And second of all, we see Moses and God having a conversation about what's going to happen next. It's interesting that in this text, we don't see that explicitly, but I think we're really safe to assume that both of those things happened. What we do see, however, is Moses laying out a battle plan for the next day. And it's a very simple plan that has two parts. Part one is that Joshua will gather a group of men and go and fight the Amalekites. And part two is Moses will go on top of the hill with the staff of God in his hands. Now, I imagine people were standing around when this plan was being shared. And I imagine if you were to ask them, which part of the plan is the most important part? Part one, Joshua going to fight. Or part two, Moses going to stand on the hill. I imagine everyone would say part one is probably the most important part of this plan. In fact, they'd probably have questions about part one that they'd want answers to. Questions like, how many men should Joshua get? And where are we going to get weapons for all of them? And what formation should they stand in? And what happens if Joshua dies and someone else needs to take his place? What are we going to do then? And it's interesting that as you keep reading the text, none of those questions are answered. In fact, if you look at the description given to part one of the plan, it almost seems like it's way too short. We read it in verse 10. So Moses says, Joshua, go and fight. In verse 10, it says, so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. Right? It, it doesn't get much more bare bones than that. Joshua, go and fight. So Joshua went and fought. That's all we hear about part one. Part two, on the other hand, which probably seemed a little bit less important to most people standing around, receives much more attention in the description of what happens. If we continue reading verse 10, this is what we read. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. Well, Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they put, took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Uh, the amount of time alone to describe what Moses did shows us just how important it is. And it's really this memorable and visual imagery of Moses lifting up his hands and the battle goes well, and lowering his hands and the battle goes poorly for God's people. It's this really incredible imagery. It reminds me a little bit of a pastor that I heard about who was, uh, it was his first week at a seminary at his new church. It was his first church he was ever preaching at. And he gets up on stage after the worship music's done and when it's his turn to preach. And he stands in front of the church. And the first thing he does is he goes like this. And everybody stands up. And then he goes like this. And everybody sits down. And he doesn't say anything. And he goes like this again. And everybody stands up, and he, everyone sits down. 
He does that one more time, and then he says, sorry, I've always wanted to do that, <laughs> right? And, and sometimes we can read this story and feel like, you know, that's kind of what Moses is like on the hill, right? He lifts his hands up, it's going well, oh, down, you know. And, and it's easy to look at Moses and say, that's an incredible amount of power for a person to have. Like, can you imagine what it would be like to have that much power? But the thing is, I think if we look a bit more closely at the text, we'll realize that Moses I don't think we're meant to see Moses as incredibly powerful in this story. And, and there's a couple reasons I'll say this. The first is back in verse 9. So Moses said that his part of the plan was he was going to go on top of the hill and he was going to bring the staff of God in his hands. Now, it may have seen, seemed insignificant at the time, but the staff of God is an incredible thing throughout the book of Exodus. Uh, it's the staff that Moses carried with him when he was a shepherd, and it's the staff he had in his hand when he met God for the first time at the burning bush. Uh, you remember this iconic scene where God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush? And at that time, Moses is holding a staff, and God speaks to him about the staff. It says the Lord, this is Exodus chapter 4, verse 2 to 4. It says, The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? Moses said, A staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. Ah, this really incredible story. And as you continue reading the, the narrative in the book of Exodus, this staff shows up time and time again. So when Moses goes to Pharaoh, he does the same thing with the staff becoming a snake. Uh, when Moses puts the staff into the Nile River that turns the water into blood. It's a staff that's used with the plagues of the locusts. It's used with the plagues of the gnats. And probably most memorably, it's a staff that Moses holds over the Red Sea when the waters part and God's people walk through on dry ground. Now, it's, it's not a magical staff, so don't think Lord of the Rings or Gandalf or anything like that. That's not the kind of staff that it is. The staff just represents God's power and God's presence with his people. And so when you looked up on the hill on that day and you saw Moses holding this staff over his head, the first thing you would think about was God's power and God's presence, right? It wouldn't be about Moses. It wouldn't even necessarily be about the staff, but about what that staff pointed to. But more than that, look how Moses is described in verse 12 that we just read. It says this, Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So not only do we see the staff in his hands, which reminds us of God's power, the text highlights for us Moses' physical weakness. He has this one job to do, to hold up the staff in his hands, and he's too weak to do that job. Now, I'm not knocking Moses because at this point in his life, he's probably around 80 years old or just over that. And, and so I think most of us would struggle to do something like this. And it makes sense that he would need people to help him. And so because he can't do it, Aaron, who's his brother, and her, who I used to think was a girl for the longest time when I heard this story read, but it's different spelling. Uh, they both stand on either side of him and they hold up his hands so that they stay steady to the going down of the sun. And so when you looked up at Moses sitting on a rock, an old man, hands above his head being held up by people on either side, I imagine his head probably drooping as well, you wouldn't look at Moses and say, that guy is a powerful man. 
right? You would recognize that something powerful is happening, but you know right away that it's actually nothing to do with Moses. This is a power that doesn't come from him. And so I find it interesting then what we read next in verse 13. It says this, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now, I don't know about you, but based on what we just talked about, that seems like a little bit of a generous description of what happened on the battlefield that day. Right? Because we just talked about how when Moses had his hands up, the battle went well. When, it had, when he had his hands down, the battle went poorly. And, and so when you read that Joshua overwhelmed, well, overwhelmed Amalek with the sword, technically it's true. That's technically what happened. But we all know, having read this, that it doesn't actually have anything much to do with Joshua and how well he did at fighting that day. If Moses doesn't keep his hands up, there's not a chance Joshua wins that battle. If God isn't powerfully at work, there's actually not a chance that Joshua wins that battle. See, Joshua is fighting a battle that's completely out of his hands. He's in a situation where he can do all he can, but he's actually completely dependent on somebody else to come through for him. Otherwise, he has no hope. A few years ago, before we had kids, my wife and I were, uh, were thinking on, it'd be nice to go to Granville Island. So a Saturday afternoon, we decided we're going to drive to Granville Island. And we show up and we find out that it's National Kids Day at Granville Island. And we don't have any, any kids, but everybody else seems to have kids. And the island is busier than I've ever seen it before. Now, that was our first time there. But even since then, that's the busiest I've ever seen it. And we're trying to find a parking spot on this busy island on a hot Saturday afternoon. And I don't know about the rest of you, but when I'm trying to find a parking spot and it's busy and there's not enough spaces, I start to get a little irritable and a little bit grumpy. And it's just not my favorite thing in the world to do. And so we're circling the island. We're trying to find spots. And it feels like it's one of those days where, you know, the person in front of you finds a spot and you keep driving, you look in your rearview mirror, the person behind you finds a spot. <laughs> and then you get to an empty spot, but you realize it's not empty. There's a smart car parked in it. And you just, it was one of those days and I was ready to go home. I said, honey, it was nice driving around the island, but maybe we can just go home now. And she said, no, 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 let's, let's drive off the island, park a block away and we'll walk onto the island. It will be a great time. So let's do that. So we, we get off the island, and one of the first things I see is a, a sign that says underground parking. So that's great. So we follow a car into this underground parking garage, and as we're making our way in, all of a sudden I hear this crunching noise on the top of my vehicle. Yeah, and I look at my rear view mirror, and I see a part of my roof rack falling off behind me, and a gate closing behind me as well. See, what had happened was I had followed this car, unbeknownst to me, into a private parking garage. He had pressed a button to open the gate. We had both gone in together and the gate had closed. And by the time I realized what had happened, that car was parked. The people were inside, probably enjoying the nice day. And we were stuck in a parking garage with no way of getting out. And so I'm trying to think, what should we do? So I said, you know, is there a button we can press? Is there something we can drive over with our wheel? Nothing like that. We thought maybe if we go further in, there's another exit. No, there wasn't. So we had to come all the way back. And we are in a situation where basically all we could do is just sit there and wait and hope that somebody else would come and help us. It was a situation where it's not like we can make ourselves busy to try to get out faster. All we could do is sit and wait and hope that somebody who had one of those garage door openers would come and let us out. 
Uh, eventually somebody did. But it was a situation where it was just completely out of our hands. We had to rely on somebody else. See, Joshua is in a similar situation, although in his situation, the difference is that he's actually called upon to do something as he relies on God, as he relies on other people. And, and what I want to talk about today, your, your outline has these two phrases on them that I want to explore. The first phrase says this, God does what we can't do for ourselves. God does what we can't do for ourselves. And this is where that dependence piece comes in. Recognizing that as humans, there's things that we can't do that we actually need to rely upon God to do for us. This is true in salvation. This is true in all kinds of other ways. But the second phrase I want us to write down in our outlines that I want us to think about is this. God does what we can't do for ourselves, but he doesn't do what we must do for ourselves. And I think you need to understand both of these statements if you're going to understand what's going on in the story here. Because you look at the story and the truth is that the victory comes from God. The victory comes because God is powerfully at work amongst his people. But the amazing thing is that he still calls Joshua to play a part. He still calls Moses to lift his hands on the hill. He still uses Aaron and her to support Moses. And so there's a sense in which God is powerfully at work and yet he calls people to be involved in what he's doing. Now, you might ask the question, could a God have just done this by himself? Could he have done it without Moses and without Joshua? And I think the answer is yes, he definitely could have. If you look to the Red Sea and what God did there, it was very much God working on his own and, and the people just watching and, and, and being part of in that way. Uh, but the truth is that God chooses to use people in what he's doing. And he often operates the same way today where there's things where God alone can only do, there's things that only God can do, and yet he calls us to be part of what he's doing in accomplishing his purposes in the world. And I think part of growing in maturity is learning to, to recognize the difference between those two things. Recognizing what are the things that I need to entrust to God, knowing that only he can do this, and what are the things I actually need to obediently walk in, trusting that God will take care of the rest. Let me give you an example of this. In the Great Commission, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 to 20, Jesus speaks to his disciples before he ascends to the Father, and he says these words. He says, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we have this mission from God, and on the one hand, it seems fairly simple. Go and make disciples of all nations. But if you think about what that entails, it actually becomes this pretty daunting task. Because if you think about what Jesus is saying, he's saying, go into all the nations. Go into nations where people worship other gods or people don't believe in God or maybe nations where people don't know what to think about God or don't really care about God. And your goal is to make disciples, which means that those people are going to become people who not only believe in God, they believe that Jesus came and died for their sins, they trust him with their life, and they want to live forever only for him, to lay down their lives completely for him. And you think about the gap between those two people, and it seems almost insurmountable. It seems insurmountable because we recognize that as humans, we can't change people's hearts. We can't change people's minds. If you've ever had kids, you probably know this is true. You can't change someone else's mind for them. 
right? You can say all the right things. You can do all the right things. You can be kind. You can be polite. You can logically lay out why somebody should believe something or why they should do something. But at the end of the day, you can't make that decision for somebody else. I remember a few months ago, I was standing outside a restaurant and we were kind of all lined up before the restaurant was open. And, and as people do, there were some people talking quietly with their friends and other people talking quite loudly. And there was this one conversation happening that was, that was particularly loud and, and everyone can kind of hear what they were saying. And I remember thinking, and, and not being judgmental, but just thinking to myself, a relationship with God is probably the furthest thing from these people's minds. Just based on what they were saying, based on the way the conversation was going, I remember thinking a relationship with God or, or, or Jesus is probably the last thing on these people's minds. And I remember having this moment just thinking to myself, what could I say or what could I do that would make a dent in this person's life? I, I just remember feeling so inadequate and just thinking to myself, what could I possibly say that would kind of break through and be impactful in this person's life? I remember just walking away feeling pretty discouraged and pretty inadequate. And then I came to Willingdon on the weekend, and it was Baptism Sunday. Once a month, we we celebrate baptisms, and we see people uh, being baptized in the tank back here and sharing their testimonies. And it was such an encouraging day for me because I heard the story over and over. It was a story of someone who didn't believe in God who now did. Someone who wasn't thinking about a relationship with Jesus, and now that's actually all they can think about. You you see the story of that transformation, sometimes more dramatic than others, but always this story of, of, of I was over here, and now I'm over here. And one of the things I noticed in each of the stories, there was two things that were happening. In each of the stories, God was doing a work that only God could do. In each story, God was softening that person's heart. God was revealing himself to that person, showing that person his love for them. He was drawing that person towards himself. But also in that story, in each of the stories, I saw God's people at work doing what God had called them to. You know, maybe it was a friend that invited them to church. Or maybe it was a co-worker that had prayed for them. Maybe it was a family member that was, they were always talking about Jesus. And I never really took it seriously until this moment. And I imagine that there were people in their stories that felt inadequate. Who looked at the situation and said, you know what, what can I say or what can I do in this situation that would actually make a difference? And the incredible thing in these stories, you see both of these coming together. You see God doing what only God can do. And yet you see God's people playing a part that God has called them to play. And this is where faith really comes into play. Faith not in some abstract way, not in some theoretical way, but it, but it takes faith to do this kind of thing because when you, when you share your faith, when you, you, when you share the gospel, you're basically saying, I'm doing this because I believe that God can be powerfully at work in people's lives if I do this. When you share your faith, you're saying, I actually trust that God can work powerfully through the gospel message, and so I'm going to share it. You don't share your faith unless you believe that God is powerfully at work in people's lives and it can make a difference. And so we live in this tension, this tension where God has called us to be a part of what he's doing and to walk faithfully in that, but recognizing that there's things that only he can do. 
And so how do we walk this way? How do we exercise this kind of faith? I want us to think about three questions and they're written on your outline to help us reflect on this and to think about how this plays itself out in our lives. The first question is this, where have you seen God come through in your life? This is an important question to ask because so often it's easy to forget the things that we've seen God do in the past and to act as if they they didn't happen. See, Israel, in, in, in the book of Exodus and all throughout the Old Testament, they have a really good memory of the things that have gone wrong for them. So if something bad happens to Israel, they have a very good memory. They can tell you all about it. They can recall it. They'll think about it all the time. They're not going to forget that. But it seems like every time God does something incredible for his people, that's the first thing they forget. And so in this text itself, God tells Moses, he says, write this as a memorial in a book. And he he gets Moses to make an altar as well. A, A visual reminder of what God has done for his people. Because when we remember what God has done in the past, it gives us courage and faith to follow him in the present and in the future. What do you need to remember this week? The second question is this, in which areas of your life are you currently depending on God to do what only he can do? And this question is just meant to get us thinking about the fact that there's so many aspects of our life that are out of our control. We don't always like to admit that. We like to think we're, we're in control. We have you know, authority in our own lives. But the truth is there's so many aspects of our life that are quite simply out of our control. And to think about the areas in your life where you're actually already trusting God to come through in things that only he can do. Recognizing how you've already put your trust in God. And then the third question, this is where I want to spend a bit of time. What's something that you can step into this week that would force you to trust God even more? And I ask this question because I think we live in a culture in a time when comfort and being comfortable is one of the biggest goals on, on most people's minds. Whether we always acknowledge it or not, I think if we, if we tend towards something, it's tending to want to be comfortable. So when somebody asks us the question, how are things going? We love it when the answer is everything's going well. You know, the marriage is good. The kids are good. School's going well. My job's going well. I get along with my coworkers. My boss and I are getting along. You know, everyone's healthy. Things are just going well. And there's nothing wrong with things going well in your life. But, but I'll say this. The problem sometimes is when things are very comfortable for us, it's hard for us to actually foster a spirit of dependence on God. And so my challenge for us is if we're in that place where things are comfortable, what's a step we can take this week, maybe out of our comfort zone, a step of faith saying, I'm going to do this thing, trusting that God will come through if I do. Now, I'm not talking about putting God to the test and doing something wild and crazy and saying, you know, God bless this and, and if, you know, God's going to come through for me. I'm just talking about things that God's already called us to as his people. Uh, maybe, maybe it's related to finances. Maybe you're like a lot of people and, and the thought process that goes through your mind is, uh, once I reach this level of financial stability or financial security, then I'm going to start to be very, very generous and it's going to be amazing. You know, kind of once I reach that number, and, and maybe the number kind of keeps going up in your mind, but maybe once I reach that number, I'm going to be very generous. And I'm asking you, what if this week you said to yourself, I'm going to start being generous now, trusting that I have a Heavenly Father who can provide for me? We talked about sharing your faith. 
Uh, and maybe you're like, like a lot of people, you say, I'm going to wait for the perfect moment. And then once that moment comes, I'm going to share it with my coworker. I'm going to share it with my neighbor. Once that kind of moment presents itself, I'll know it's going to be the perfect moment. And I'm saying, what if you, instead of waiting for that perfect moment that often doesn't come, what if you said, this week I'm going to share even if the moment's not perfect? Trusting that God can be at work in this person's life, doing things that I can never do. I'll, I'll do what he calls me to and trust that he'll do what only he can do. What would it look like this week? Maybe it's something else, but what would it look like to step into something knowing that if God doesn't come through, it's not going to go well, but trusting that he will come through in his way, in his time. I didn't mention it before, but Exodus 17, the story we just read, it's actually the first time we're introduced to Joshua in the Bible. Uh, It's not the last time many of you will recognize his name. He comes to have a place of leadership in God's people. And I think one of the reasons why Joshua became a leader of God's people is because he learned this lesson on this day. It was a bit later that God's people made it to the border of the promised land, the land that God said that they could have. And God told them, go and take the land. It's yours. I'm giving it to you. And the people decided they were going to send some spies into the land to figure out what the situation was. So the spies went out into the land and they all brought back the same report. They said, the land is amazing. It's got water. It's got plants, vegetation, fruits. It's an incredible land. But they said, the people in it, there's too many of them and they're too big. There's not a chance we could take this land. And so God tells his people, actually, I'll go with you. And you will have success. You go in, you'll take the land, and I'm going to give it to you. And that was all Joshua needed to hear. Joshua was ready to go. He said, let's go. God's with us. I'm willing to do what God's called me to because I trust God's going to do what only he could do. But the problem was almost every other person doubted God in that moment. Everybody else asked questions like, what if God doesn't show up? Or maybe he won't show up like he did before. What if we try and we get destroyed because God's not with us? And I wonder how often we ask ourselves the same questions. What if God doesn't show up? What if I put myself out there? What if I try this and, and God doesn't show up and I, and I utterly fail? And that's a difficult place to be, but I think it's an important place to be because when we ask those questions... We have that opportunity to make our faith real. To say, I'm going to walk into what God has called me to. And I'm going to trust that he can do what only he can do. And so what has he called you to this week? Knowing that God does what we can't do for ourselves, but he doesn't do what we must do for ourselves. Let's pray together. And so, Father, we thank you for the ways that you're powerfully at work. God, you are an awesome God. You don't need us, and yet you choose to allow us to be part of what you're doing. And that's such an amazing thing. And so, Father, I pray for courage this week. I pray for a willingness to follow you in the the areas that you lead us. And I pray that you just deepen our trust in you. Father, we thank you that you're faithful. I pray that you'd walk with us this week in whatever we're going through. Help us to follow you more closely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.